1: Welcome to
2: the Peter King Podcast, where I bring you into my world. It's a world of professional football and a few other things about life. This week, Dan Fouts, Pro Football Hall of Fame quarterback and currently a CBS color commentator. Also, Tim Rohan, who's got a great new podcast series on Cadence 13 and for Sports Illustrated based on the life and death of Steve McNair. But first, I want to get a little human here. I want to tell you a little story. You may have heard the podcast a month or so ago when I had Justin Tucker, the kicker of the Baltimore Ravens. You probably learned a little bit about him. One of the funniest things he said, this most accurate kicker in NFL history, he said, oh, hang on, I don't want to split my infinitives. And when I heard that, I said, now, this is a different cat. And he is. And I wrote about this a little bit in my Football Morning in America column this week at NBCSports.com. But I found Justin Tucker, after one of the most trying moments of his kicking career, I found his behavior to be so interesting and so compelling and so good and such a lesson in this for all of us, no matter what we do in life, that I wanted to pass it on to you. So as many of you know, Justin Tucker, Baltimore Ravens, the most efficient field goal kicker, the most accurate field goal kicker in the history of the national football league The league has been around for 99 seasons and no one other than Justin Tucker has made 90% of his field goals or better. So His accuracy also extends to extra points. And with the extra points, you go back to when Justin Tucker was a kicker in high school in Austin, Texas at Westlake High, which is also Drew Brees' alma mater. When he was a senior in high school back in 2007, uh, he never missed an extra point in high school, made 40 of 40. When he then went to the University of Texas and booted for four years, he never missed an extra point, 71 out of 71. And as the sun set on the stadium, uh, m and Bank Stadium in Baltimore on Sunday, something bizarre happened after this kicker had made 256 consecutive extra points as an NFL kicker. He never missed one. So here's a guy who had not missed an extra point since he was 16 years old. As I said in my column, just imagine the last time Justin Tucker missed an extra point, he wasn't shaving yet. So obviously, you know where this story is going. 24-23 Saints, clock running out. This is it. This is the last chance to tie the game, to send it to overtime. And Justin Tucker booted the ball outside the right upright and missed the extra point. Ravens lose 24-23 to the New Orleans Saints. It looked to me, I've watched it on replay 25 times, like a gust of wind took it right. But afterwards, uh, Justin Tucker didn't want to... Make any excuses. He didn't want to hear about any excuses. He missed it. It's his job to make it. And he approached the PR director of the Baltimore Ravens after the the game, and he said, I'd like to go to the podium. Now, understand that the coach and the quarterback uh, and maybe one other player, one other star might go to the podium uh, for the large press conferences after the Ravens games. Kicker doesn't go to the podium. Uh, but he wanted to go to the podium because he knew a lot of people would want to talk to him and a lot of people would want to hear his thoughts, and he said, I need to face the music. He went to the podium, talked for about 13 minutes, and uh, basically said at one point during his, his talk to the, to the writers, you know, I would want my son to know that, you know, when everything doesn't go right for you in life, you got to face the music, and you have to stand up and admit when you made a mistake. And that's really my lesson for the week. I just found that so accountable, so well done, so perfectly stated by him. And um, I hope you might go back and listen to my conversation with Tucker. It was very interesting. He talked about having a grandfather who said, "Hey, Justin, just make the damn kick. You know nobody cares about your you know what the weather is, what anything. And that's the way he's lived his career in the NFL. Just make the damn kick. And I just thought you'd like to hear that story about Justin Tucker, the kicker for the Baltimore Ravens. And now my conversation with Dan Fouts. Back on the Peter King podcast. So happy to be joined by Dan Fouts, uh, the pro football hall of fame quarterback. And uh, also a couple of other things about Dan. He's uh, One of the 48 Hall of Fame voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Uh, We might sneak in a question or two about that. Um, We might sneak in a question or two about the state of modern football. And Dan Fouts, obviously, as you see him every Sunday uh, as a CBS TV analyst. Uh, And also, Dan, I, I want everyone to know that Dan Fouts is incredibly bullish about his home state of Oregon. My family, my extended family, went on a vacation uh, to a a place near Portland out in wine country uh, last year. And and, uh, Dan and his wife came and met us, uh, had a glass of wine with us. And he's like Joe Chamber of Commerce for the state of Oregon. He wants everybody to love it. And he did a very good job because I can tell you the King family, on their first trip as as a family, as a tribe to Oregon, we all left and we said, man, when are we coming back? So, uh, Dan, thanks for that, and thanks for joining me.
3: Well, Peter, it's always good to be in the company of the king.
2: (laughs) Well, that's cool. Um, So, Dan, let's start with current events. Um, You did the Bears and Patriots on Sunday, and I'm curious, as somebody who has made his living first throwing a football and now analyzing people who play football, I'm wondering, what, if anything, does the Patriots' reign remind you of? Have you seen anything like it? Uh, and what, when you watch them, and when you watch them this weekend, you know, dispatch yet another young contender to the throne, the Chicago Bears, what do you think when you watch them?
3: Um, you know, I continue to be amazed at their consistency. Uh, But so much of it has to do, obviously, with with, uh, Belichick and Brady. Uh, They're the ones that have been here throughout. They're the ones that make it work. And uh, it's a perfect combination because Bill is, uh, you know, such a defensive guru, and Tom has uh, seen it all and done it all. So you just know that uh, regardless of what the score is, that the Patriots are going to find a way. And yesterday, the way they found it was uh, through special teams. They didn't have Gronkowski. They lost uh, Sony Michelle early in the ball game to a knee injury, uh, but they had two touchdowns on special teams. So you know, what do you you know? You may be able to stop them uh, sometimes, but uh, they'll always seem to find a way.
2: You know what impressed me about that game yesterday is that so Cordero Patterson hands the Bears a touchdown, and he gets it back. You know, he, so I'm not necessarily patting him on the back, but at least he got back to ground zero.
3: Well, he, he expects to return every kick off the distance, and that's yeah. the way he runs. Uh, there's no hesitation in the way he hits the hole. He's 225 pounds, so he's going to run through some arm, arm tackles as he did on that uh, 95-yard return for a touchdown. So uh, he's a big guy with tremendous speed. And he's uh, very courageous. You know, the fumble was—he uh, he had the ball in his arm. It wasn't as if he uh, was careless with it. It was just a, a good hit uh, by Kwiatkowski that knocked it out.
2: So, uh, what I was—what I was going to harp on a bit is Dante Hightower. You know, here's the guy who maybe is the most prominent single player on their defense. I'd say him and him and Devin McCordy. And here he is, rushing from the middle of the punt block team, uh, and and obviously, if you play for uh, Belichick, it's like you know playing for Parcells. He would always have his starters play play uh, in the kicking game unless you were a quarterback. And I wonder when you look at that, and you look at he's not just he's not just uh, you know burrowing his head in there. And, and making it look like he's trying. I mean, he is trying like heck to make a play like it was any other play. That, to me, the way Belichick has gotten his guys you know, to play special teams and to play them at a high level over the years, I think is also a tribute to him.
3: No question. And it, it's about preparation. And what the Patriots saw is a weak link in the punt protection unit of the Bears. Uh, necker got rolled up. Uh, It was almost as if he wasn't even there. Hightower had so much power uh, to just roll him right back past the personal protector and right to the foot of the punter where he blocked the ball basically with his face mask. That's how uh, dominant that one play was by Hightower. And uh, again, that was just uh, seeing where the weak link is on that line and uh, taking advantage of it.
2: Dan, what's been your interaction over the years with Tom Brady? What have have your conversations been like with him? And what have you learned about Brady uh, over the years and or recently uh, from talking to him?
3: Well, I I don't know if you know this or not, but when I was the sports director and sports anchor at KPIX in San Francisco for a couple of years, uh, I was assigned to do a story on the top uh, high school prospects in the Bay Area. And one of them was a kid named Tom Brady from Sarah High School. Wow. And so I interviewed Tom, and and it's on on the Internet if you want to check it out. Uh, The funny thing is I asked him, I pretended, uh, you know, Tom, I'm a college scout. Tell me about you. What is the scouting report on you? And he says, well, I'm I'm told I am have a strong arm, I'm fairly accurate, but I need to work on my speed.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: what has changed? <laughs> it's changed? He's accurate, he's got a strong arm, and he's slow, but, uh, you know, he went to Michigan and, and uh, had a, you know, a tough time there, finally won the job there from Drew Henson. So I, I go way back with Tom, obviously, and I, it's a delight to be with him on these production meetings. I, I find him to be very candid and and um just uh you know he, he first of all, he's a San Francisco Giant fan, uh and so am I, because that's where I grew up. And uh we're rooting for the Red Sox, obviously, to beat the Dodgers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's very good. Uh you're in my tribe. Um what what's he what do you say I I take it you were with him on Saturday uh in Chicago, is that correct?
3: Oh yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. And so what's what's his mindset right now, Dan? Do you think about playing this game every time he he speaks about it it's there's no finite end there's no finite end to him the It almost seems like uh it's certainly not an unlimited horizon but he, he the sun's not setting on the guy right now what What do you sense from talking to him
3: exactly that um He's the same now as he was ten years ago. Basically, uh, he has more jewelry and, and a lot more money now, but uh, he's still basically the same Tom Brady. Um, and it's interesting the way Brady and the Patriots approach the season. It's almost as if they have four seasons. You ha- you have the preseason, and then you have the first couple weeks of the season, and then you get uh, towards the end of the season, November, uh, you know, Thanksgiving, and that's like the third season. And of course. By that time, they're they're in the playoffs, and, and that's their fourth season. So uh, in talking to him on Saturday, he said that, uh, you know, although they've now won four games in a row, uh, that they're still getting their, you know, their sea legs and, and finding a way to, to get to that next season and, and to continue to improve.
2: As a guy who played the game for a long time, I think you played 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. What... What sort of respect or i'm I don't know exactly what word to use I mean this is basically tom Brady's uh eighteenth full season uh, as an NFL quarterback and in his seventeenth he he won the MVP so I'm just curious when you look at him, what do you see and what makes him a guy who can keep doing this year after year?
3: Well, he's smart. He, he's smart in, in every way that uh, has to do with football. Uh, he knows how to condition himself uh, during the season and in the offseason. Uh, he knows the Patriot offense inside and out. His relationship with his coordinator, Josh McDaniels, is, is uh, one that I'm sure that they, they finish each other's sen- sentences at times. Right. Uh, and he enjoys the game. He enjoys the the competition, he enjoys the challenge, he j- enjoys his teammates, and uh, the results are uh, just an amazing, you know, career at 41 years old.
2: Does he ever talk to you, or has he ever over the years, talked to you about sort of the inner game of, of playing quarterback, and have you ever had, because I'm sure that he can sit down and have an interesting conversation with Ian Eagle, your partner, but you've been in the arena, you, you're, you've, you've got a bust in Canton. So if, over the years, do you find yourself ever, him ever kind of probing you about the game?
3: Oh, there once in a while. Usually he's, he's probing me for information about the opponent he's going to be playing. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, there is, uh, you know, the, um, the empathy uh, that goes along with, knowing what the position's all about and, and, uh, the pressures and, and all that goes with it. But, uh, uh, he, he is, uh, he's remarkable. And, and as I said, he's smart. He knows, uh, he knows everything. It seems like, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, he really does. He's good at that. Can I tell you about my new favorite thing at home? I mean, it's not even close, It's my new Sonos Beam. Sonos Beam is the smart, compact soundbar for my TV and the newest addition to my home sound system. It plays everything I love. So much to enjoy. Sonos supports over 100 streaming services, and I can use AirPlay to enjoy music and my favorite shows from my iPhone or iPad. And let me tell you, I've gotten into podcasts recently, and there's always a podcast going off in my head. I want them around me at all times. I learn so much from both news podcasts. I love the true crime podcasts. Um, And so Sonos Beam allows me to listen to something, not in headphones necessarily, but listen to something in one room of the house when something else, NPR, music might be on in another room of the house. Very, very cool. Now, not only does it have the, all the streaming I need, but wait to hear the sound quality. It's brilliant. Using my Beam fills my living room with such great sound. Other rooms, too. I can enjoy detailed stereo separation for music, plus crystal clear dialogue for TV and movies. And I can't believe how easy it is to set up. There's no crazy wiring. Beam connects to your TV with just one cord. It syncs with your remote, no matter what kind of remote you have. Even better is that the Sono app makes it so easy to set up. Now here's something I wasn't expecting. Amazon Alexa is built in. I get all the benefits of having Alexa, and now I even have hands-free control of my music. I can use my voice to turn the TV on or off. That is a scary process. Because my voice is not necessarily great to hear commands of. Like, Alexa, turn on the TV. Alexa, walk the dog. Anyway, I just, I don't know why I get into that, but it's, you can do anything with this thing. Pretty soon it will be walking my dog. But anyway, how great is all that? So get your Sonos today. Don't wait. Don't you want to listen to music in one room and a podcast in another? Or send sound from your TV everywhere so you never miss a second of the action. Create the ultimate entertainment center with your Beam. With your Sonos Beam. So go online to get yours today.
0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
3: of a detour.
2: Let's go to a couple of other topics. I, I guess I would start by asking you, you know, you were an adamant, adamant uh, supporter of the Chargers staying in San Diego. And now, obviously, they're in LA. There's a lot of you know bitter feelings that have flowed toward the Chargers as they have moved up the 405. And I wonder now, what do you think is the fate of the future of football in San Diego? You think there's a chance an NFL team ever goes back? Do you ever hear discussions about this?
3: Oh, yeah, not serious. Discussions, uh, you know, the, there's a stadium problem there. Right. Obviously, that's why the Chargers had to leave. Uh, so I would think that if any team ever were to relocate there, they'd have to build a new stadium first, and, and then uh, go through all the steps that it required. But um, you know, it's it's a shame because San Diego is, uh, as, as everyone knows, is a very desirable destination for Super Bowls because of the weather and because of the uh, the city itself and the surrounding areas. So uh, I always thought that if they could get a new stadium, that obviously that uh, the Super Bowl would be right around the corner because that seems to be the way the NFL operates. When you build a stadium, uh, a new stadium, and uh, the, it meets all the requirements, it's pretty sure you're going to get a Super Bowl.
2: Yeah, You just got to, and I hate to be pithy about this, but... You know, I was thinking about this when writing about Paul Allen over the weekend, the 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 late Seattle owner. You know, when he got that stadium built up in Seattle, I mean, and this was a generation ago. This was 21 years ago uh, when he got that stadium built. He put 130 million toward it, plus the cost overruns. There were some. I don't know how much. And then there was a statewide referendum that raised 300 million dollars. And again, I'm not trying to poo-poo 300 million dollars, but you know, I can see somewhere somebody coming up with that kind of money, uh, you know, to go toward building a, a, a huge new stadium. But now it's not 300 or 400 or 500 million anymore; it's 2 billion, and that, and especially in San Diego, with what with what the land would cost, you, you probably have to add even more to that, and that's why. I think it's got to be, I'm not saying a long shot, but, man, there'd be a lot of hurdles to putting a team back there.
3: No question. Uh, And um, in California, uh, voters do not vote for stadiums. And that's a a fact and uh, one that is going to be a a huge hurdle, no question. Uh,
2: This just occurred to me. You think there's any chance... That an, I, I see that, that Russell Wilson is now a part of a prospective ownership group for a major league baseball team in Portland. And I attended my first sports event in Portland last year. I went to see the Timbers, and that was a tremendous amount of fun. It uh, that, that really was a great crowd. I can see pro sports being extremely popular in Portland. Is there a prayer of a chance that an NFL team ever goes to Portland?
3: Uh, I don't think so. Um, I don't know if there's, uh, you know, the backing or the the desire. I mean, you're talking baseball. They've been talking about that forever. Yeah. Um, You know, the Blazers have been a tremendous success uh, in Portland, but I think the proximity of of Seattle to Portland uh, may be a problem there. And I'm not sure uh, if there's public money or the – you know, if, if there's enough public money to, to yeah. uh, help fund that stadium.
2: Strikes me that it would have to be like a Phil Knight-type guy, the way Paul Allen was in Seattle. Or, and I don't know anything about the, the major corporations there. But, I, I hey, look, I think it's a great city. It's a great area. Um, you know, it's like having Napa Valley in your backyard, you know, the wine country there. It really is beautiful. you got a great place, Dan.
3: I appreciate it. Come on back. We'll, yeah. uh, we'll have another glass of wine.
2: Uh, with Dan Fouts of CBS Sports. Dan, I um, want to ask you about the state of football. I uh, One of the reasons why I really wanted to hear your thoughts is that I'm starting to hear, I had Joe Staley of the 49ers on my podcast last week, uh, and he talked about how he feels sorry for the defensive players. And look, over the years, <clears throat> you've heard a lot of contentiousness. Hey, are there too many rules favoring the offense? Um, and, and But Staley basically said, I feel sorry for the defense because I don't know how you play aggressive football with these rules. And I wonder when you watch all these rules being made and the flags that you're seeing thrown, what do you think of the balance in the game right now, and what, if anything, do you think should happen?
3: Yeah, that, that's a really good question because, um, you know, everybody seems to have been enjoying these wide open offenses, but Joe does have a point there. It's, uh, it's so unfair to defenses now. I was thinking as you were asking me that question, maybe the solution is to let the defense play with 12 players. and and the offense just 11, because it just seems so many times now with these wide-open offenses and these great athletes as receivers and running backs and tight ends, that they're just running free. Uh, And then after they they make a catch, uh, they're breaking tackles because the tackles aren't as ferocious or as uh, effective as they used to be because of the rules. But one thing I've noticed the last couple weeks is that some of the officials just aren't calling them like they did at the beginning of the season. Uh, They're not calling helmet-to-helmet as much. They're not calling, uh, you know, roughing the passer quite as much. So uh, who knows what's going on in the league office, but it seems that every year there's an emphasis on one rule or another, and what happens is they really enforce it early in the year, and then as the season goes along... The officials kind of back off. So you tell me,
2: Dan. The first thing I thought when you said the defense, maybe the defense should play twelve players. I thought, okay, Dan. It's been great having you on a guest as a guest. Now we're going to put you back in the old football players' home. Uh, but but I <laughs> I just thought to myself that after while you were talking, I said that's a really really cool idea. It's a progressive idea. It's a different idea. And I do not think it's a bad idea. I think it'd be really, really cool to naturally, as a matter of course, every secondary start five guys. Now, a lot of teams do that anyway now, playing nickel on first down. But imagine if you had a a third corner just playing the game as a matter of course on every play, and, and instead of saying, well, that's your nickel guy. No. That's a starting guy, and you could play a fourth corner. He would be your nickel guy. It's really an interesting idea, especially because of the way offenses spread the field as early as first down now.
3: Well, and, and if you added an extra pass rusher, you, you might really see some some change there. So, uh, I don't know. Run that by the league office. See how far we get.
2: <laughs> Dan, um you talked about the helmet to helmet hits that's what i'm on my high horse about this uh, now because it's just that play was called whatever 62 times in the preseason or something and it was all the you know the uh, <clears throat> the the everybody was saying that okay the league is serious about it and it's like it's the league is the league who cried wolf you know yesterday but- on sunday week 7 uh, Nigel Bradham of the Eagles came in, lowered his helmet, and hit Cam Newton helmet to helmet, no flag. Meanwhile, in the Cleveland-Tampa game, I don't know who the defensive player was, but Baker Mayfield got earholed uh, right. on, a, on, on, a, on a play, no flag. And Mayfield turned around and said to the referee, he looked at the referee, it was as if he was saying, isn't that a penalty? I mean, it, it, it was two months ago. But evidently, you know they're just putting them in their pockets now, and
3: and I got to tell what you, curious is yeah. that those players that aren't getting called during a ball game will receive a call from the league saying you're fined
2: for
0: right. those hits, yeah,
3: but they weren't penalized during the game. So, what's going on there?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, is is the game still really really enjoyable to you, Dan, or is it? Out of balance to the point where you might be losing your love a little bit for it.
3: No, I, I still enjoy it. I mean, I hated defenses when I played, so I kind of like them <laughs> getting beat every Sunday. Uh, I, I just marvel at the athletic ability of not only the offensive players, but the defensive players too. And uh, I enjoy uh, getting to know the players and through our production meetings. Uh, you never know what's going to come out of them. Uh, and I think that uh, I think the game is in good shape. I mean, people seem to be in, enjoying the Kansas City Chiefs and the Los Angeles Rams and how wide open and, and competitive that they are. And, and uh, you know, and, and can they keep it going? I guess who who can stop these teams?
2: Dan, uh, as somebody who three times threw for four thousand yards in his career, and when you did. Back, um, guess, I think it was 80, 81, 82, something like that, or 79. I, I, I remember thinking, this is the outer limits of football. And now the last two guys who've played quarterback for the Chargers, Drew Brees and Phillip Rivers, they're among many who it's a matter of course that they throw for 4,000. And I want to ask you just your thoughts on getting to know Breeze over the years and getting to know Rivers. And what quality maybe you see and you have found in these guys that maybe we in the media and certainly the fans do not see in them?
3: Well, I think everybody sees both that what those guys are made of. I guess the one word is enjoyment. They enjoy what they do. Uh, and- but to get to that point, they work extremely hard. So it, it's it's great to see that type of dedication uh, pay off week after week, year after year for both those guys uh, and for a lot of uh, quarterbacks nowadays. We were talking about Brady earlier. It's the same it's the same type of qualities that you know you've got to enjoy what you do, uh, but you'll enjoy it a lot more if you work hard to get to the point where you want to be.
2: Yeah. I'm going to finish by asking you something that just occurred to me because I I just started thinking about when we got together in Oregon last year and we were just sitting there talking about life and and everything. And this thought occurred to me that uh, for for people who don't really remember this uh, and for people who don't really know uh, all about what exactly happened— you played in the coldest football game uh, in NFL history. you played in the AFC championship game in Cincinnati in 1982 um, and you you basically took something from that game uh, you know you took a, a health issue from that game that that uh, that reminds you of that game to this day. Can you sort of just tell me about what? <laughs> A, what it was like playing that day, and B, what it, what, what's it like living with that right now?
3: Well, I was just about to end the interview right there, anyway. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's frostbite, and um, you know, when the weather gets cold, it's like uh, my hands are constantly in a bucket of ice, and uh, for way too long. So, you know, that's part of the game. Ironically uh Kenny Anderson the Bengal quarterback who played so great that day has the same problem we've wow. uh, we've uh, shared uh, exactly our experience there and and uh, our symptoms so uh you know it was a miserable day it was windy i didn't play very well uh but uh, in those days quarterbacks didn't have the gloves that uh, they have now that could allow you to throw and to keep your your uh, hands warm but you know that's that's the game and and uh, you, i was just you know lucky enough to have played as long as i did and have been able to play in some big games and and have that experience
2: dan Fout, cbs sports uh pro football hall of fame quarterback really really appreciate you joining me and uh spreading some knowledge about a lot of different things thank you
3: always a pleasure peter you know that
2: Support for Peter King comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. It's America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It can be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, and that can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. Here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then, once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you get to keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash king. That's rocketmortgage.com slash k-i-n-g. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLSConsumerAccess.org, number 3030. Now my conversation with Tim Rohan of the MMQB. Back on the Peter King Podcast, happy to be joined by Tim Rohan. Uh, Of the MMQB, Tim uh, is a former uh, peer of mine, still is a peer of mine, but uh, formerly I worked with him at the MMQB Uh, and Tim, late in my time at the MMQB, began to work on this project and this project now is out, it's a podcast, it's called Fall of a Titan About Steve McNair, who nine plus years ago, uh, in July of 2009, uh, was found dead in an apartment in Nashville. Uh, A mistress of his, a young girl in Nashville, was found to have killed Steve McNair and then killed herself. It was called a murder-suicide, and that's what the police Termed it, and after autopsies, after examination, uh, the case was closed. But Tim Rohan, my intrepid little friend, did not necessarily believe that the case should be closed, and so he began to look into it. And Tim, your podcast is going to be a nine part series. Part one is right now up, it's done by Cadence 13. And you have eight more parts to go. And every week it will drop. A new episode will drop on Wednesday. And I'm so excited about this because I believe that podcasts are so much fun. I have gotten into crime podcasts. I have gotten into podcasts of serial, of Somebody Knows Something on the Canadian Broadcasting Company. I've just listened to a lot of these, and I really, really like them. Anyway, that's a very, very long way to introduce you, but thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Peter. Tell me about the genesis of this, and what made you think that Steve McNair and this murder case was an interesting podcast?
1: Yeah, I mean, it started. uh, It started way back in the summer of 2017. We were just kicking around true crime ideas, and uh, Adam Dorson, our SI's true crime editor, uh, approached me with an idea of writing about Steve McNair. And you know, I think it's one of those cases that you know, I think people just kind of forgot about a little bit. You know, Steve McNair at one point in time made the Pro Bowl multiple times. was an NFL MVP, co MVP with Peyton Manning, with Peyton Manning, and uh, and he was murdered you know, one year after retiring from football, you know, 36 years old, and, you know, it felt like it was really an underreported story, even though as crazy as that sounds, we thought it was underreported. And so we started looking into it. And, you know, you mentioned something there at the top that, you know, that I thought that this, you know, that I started investigating this, and I thought it wasn't a murder-suicide. I think the reason that drew us to this case was that there was a lot of people that didn't think that, you know, I'm just reporting what those people are saying. And so
2: and what's interesting about this case is that you really don't know for sure what happened. I don't think anybody knows for sure what happened in that apartment. And that's what makes it so interesting and quite honestly the way this these podcasts really have become very very interesting is that you listen to these and you're not positive what happened in many of them, going right back to Serial, the first one that exploded onto the American scene. So that, in some ways, a lot of people say, geez, I want to know. Tell me exactly what happened. Well, sometimes you can't know.
1: Yeah. And there's just, you know, you're asking why Why were we intrigued by this story? It was just, you know, there's so many different characters. There's so much mystery around it. And there's still questions. Not, we're nine plus years later. And there's still family members and friends on both sides, on the mistress side and on Steve McNair's side, who don't think it happened the way the police said it happened, who still have questions, who still have concerns, and they're lingering, you know? And so hopefully this podcast, you know, lays those, that's what we're going to do. We're going to lay out all those questions, go down all those rabbit holes, and kind of show the public what's been kind of festering with the Steve McNair case for the last nine years. So let's take a moment, please, and we're going to play
2: the trailer, to this podcast so that people can have some understanding exactly what we're talking about then when we come back from that trailer which is a couple of minutes long when we come back from that trailer i've got a couple of specific questions to ask you about the key people in this
0: crime Breaking news story out of Tennessee, former NFL quarterback Steve McNair has been found dead this afternoon in an apartment complex there in Nashville. Also saying a woman was also found shot to death.
3: After nearly four days of intensive investigation, the police department has concluded that Steve McNair was murdered by Sahil Kazemi. And that in turn, Sahil Kazemi killed herself with a single gunshot wound to her head. The totality of the evidence clearly points to a murder-suicide.
1: Steve McNair was the former star quarterback of the Tennessee Titans. He was a former NFL MVP. And on July 4th, 2009, one year after he'd retired from football, Steve was found dead in his Nashville condo with his mistress dead at his feet. The police quickly ruled that the mistress Jenny Kazemi had killed him and then turned the gun on herself around the 8th anniversary of Steve's death an editor at Sports Illustrated approached me with an assignment go write about Steve McNair it seemed like a fairly straightforward story then I started doing some research and I came across a former Nashville cop who still had some pretty big questions about the case a guy by the name of Vincent Hill Vincent had been interviewing people gathering evidence in conducting his own investigation. And he didn't believe Jenny had killed Steve McNair. He didn't think this was a murder-suicide. He thought that the Nashville police had royally botched the investigation.
2: When they said it was a murder-suicide, I just looked at the circumstances.
3: I said there's no way that Sahel Kazemi, AKA Jenny, would pull that off.
1: Vincent starts filling my head with all these theories.
3: Who stole Steve's money? Who stole Steve's necklace? His Rolex? wedding ring.
1: She didn't take it. Then I start reaching out to Steve and Jenny's friends and family. And it turns out a lot of them have the same questions. It's not just Vincent Hill. They have questions about the police investigation, about Jenny's supposed motives, about the alleged murder weapon.
0: It was such an open-close case. It's like they closed it before I felt like they were even able to do a proper investigation. Look at where the shots were now. There's not a person that's not ever handled gun. done. Think about it. Steve's death is not just about his relationship with a 20-year-old girl. His death is about money,
3: power, so forth and so on.
1: In this podcast, we'll re-examine the Steve McNair case nine years later. We'll dive into all these questions go down all these rabbit holes, and then pose questions to people in power. He told me that Dave, man, stay around me all day. I got a lot of people don't like me. We'll walk you through a family's fight for answers and all the intriguing developments that have come up in recent years.
0: It is very unlikely that Kasimi is the only component in Steve's death.
1: The questions are legitimate enough that I think it's fair to reassess at this point. Did Jenny Kazami really kill Steve McNair?
0: This is
1: a story that isn't over. There is another story. There is a complete other side to this story. Launching October 17th from Sports Illustrated and Cadence thirteen, Fall of a Titan. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
2: There are a lot of unusual things that have gone on that have never been brought to surface. So, Tim, I thought what was very interesting, both about the case and in this podcast, is that there are professionals, there are former police officers, a former police officer, a former private investigator, who basically have a difference of opinion. If you ask the Nashville Police Department, and if you ask other people who now you know, have taken time to investigate it, they're going to think differently about what exactly happened. What can you tell me about the conflict of professional people in investigations and in law enforcement
1: who simply don't agree on what happened to Steve McNair? Yeah, I mean, the the, the tension there is between two separate parties. There's the Nashville Police Department, and they're pretty much in, in unison on that, and they say... It was a murder-suicide. They think it was a clear case that the mistress killed Steve, and that's that. Just accept that. And then there's another faction of people, and the only real professional there is this guy by the name of Vincent Hill, and he's a former Nashville cop. Uh, he's a former Nashville cop who you know, left the department and has since turned himself into a private investigator, and he is of the belief that it wasn't a murder-suicide, and that there's a big conspiracy going on, and that Sahel Kazemi did not kill Steve McNair. Now, this relationship is really this tension between Vincent Hill and his former co-workers and his former colleagues at the Nashville Police Department. This is kind of one of the central, you know, themes throughout the podcast, this butting of heads against these two parties. And if people will go listen to episode one, that's pretty much what all of episode one is about, is about Vincent kind of, at one point, he was one of, he was a, he was considered a good officer within the Nashville Police Department. He received good review scores. He was named officer of the month multiple times. They really lauded him. There was a few uh, incidents he got in, uh, behavioral incidents where he was suspended or you know going to be suspended by the department. And so he ended up leaving the department, he says, for personal reasons. And then this McNair case comes up, and he decides to make this his life's mission to prove that the Nashville police are wrong and that they botched the case. So then you get into a whole thing about motives. What are people's motives here? What are their, uh, you know— is- What's, What would you say— is the basis for Vincent Hill believing that the investigation was done wrong? He just thinks, I mean, he's he's spent nine years investing in the case now, and he thinks that, uh, you know, he looks at, you know, these are things we all get into the podcast, but he, he talks about how, you know, if you look at the at the crime on a very basic level, the police say that Jenny Kazemi, Steve's mistress, she's 5'4", 125 pounds, that she shot him, four times twice in the chest and once in each temple and then shot herself first of all shooting these are all this is all in vincent hill's words here this isn't me but vincent is of the opinion that a you know a petite girl who apparently had never handled a gun before couldn't fire that accurately hitting him in both temples and twice in the chest as people have pointed out to me some of steve's friends those sound like kill shots it sounds almost like a professional shooting and so he's looking at the circumstances like Okay, that doesn't exactly add up there. Was there any, any suspicion or or any
2: evidence that she had practiced handling a gun before this day?
1: You know, she, she had never handled a gun before, by all accounts, and, uh, you know, it gets complicated there as far as, like, you know, the police talk a lot about her background, right, and her psychological background and what was going on in her life up until now. And there's a lot of people who... The police point to her actions leading up to his death and they say she caught him or she was had suspicions that he was seeing other women. She was having financial difficulties in her life. She was stressed about money and then she was arrested for a DUI two days before a couple days before they, they ended up uh, being found dead. And so the police were painting this picture of her kind of spiraling out of control. And that's really a picture as we'll get into episode three You know, coming up here, that's really a a picture that Jenny's friends and family don't find to be true. And, you know, they've looked back at all these events that the police are talking about and, you know, they don't see it exactly that way.
2: You know what's not smart? Job sites that overwhelm you with tons of the wrong resumes. But do you know what is smart? ZipRecruiter.com slash king. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter finds them for you. Its powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes. Then it identifies people with the right skills, the right education, and the right experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply for your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. There's no more sorting through lousy resumes, no more waiting for the right candidates to apply. It's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the United States. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with more than 1,000 reviews. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash king. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash K-I-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash King. ZipRecruiter. It's the smartest way to hire. Tim, in general, as we discussed this during the time when we worked together at the MMQB, it struck me that there is some suspicion, at least, and maybe some evidence that the Nashville Police Department may have jumped to some conclusions, such as the conclusion of his mis- of his mistress spiraling out of control. That that may be true, but also there's a good chance that it may not be true. Do you think that is at
1: the basis of Vincent Hill's suspicions? Yeah, no, yeah. He talks a lot about, you know, in the police, one one of the major things, we as we talk about in episode four, um, you know, one of the main points of the story is the gun that was used to kill Steve McNair, uh, the police say that the mistress bought the gun from an ex-con the day, you know, the day before, or the night, you know, a couple hours before the murder. And so that's a big point of contention because there's no evidence, it appears, no evidence that that gun sale took place other than the ex-con's word. And so, you know, a lot of this seems based on you know, in Vincent Hill's eyes, a lot of this seems based on, you know, flimsy evidence or evidence that can be contradicted in some sort of way. And so, you know, it's kind of a back and forth. It's, you could see, you could pick apart so many different parts of this case. You look at the gun sale. You look at Jenny's motive. You look at, you know... Where did she get the gun? Yeah, so they say they, they said that she bought it from this guy in a parking lot. But they don't have... They haven't shown video of the gun sale taking place. They don't quote Jenny's friends saying, oh, yeah, I knew she bought a gun. There's no one that says she bought this gun other than the guy who sold it to her. And so, you know... we. Do get you a, find him credible? That's a good question. We get into the, you know, we get into the aspect of his credibility in episode four, and it turns out that he was untruthful at times to the police. And, uh, you know, that's a big part of episode four. So, um, you know, that's the, that's that entire episode is deconstructing this gun sale. Tim,
2: I find that in true crime podcasts one of the best ways to do it which i think is the way you have done it is you simply tell the story you do not at any point say here's what i think happened and here's what you should believe you simply build the house that's what you do and that's your job what was your what was your point Throughout this process, and how did you want this story to be told?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh you know that's exactly right. You know, like I was saying, you know, you know, you're, you're asking if you know again going back to your last question about asking if I think Gilliam's credible. It's almost it doesn't even matter what I think, right? It's I'm laying it out there and letting you. Okay, here's what he's telling you know. And I thought that was the process throughout the whole podcast, because it is kind of so subjective. And you could either look at it from the police's side, or you look at it from Vincent Hill's side, or you look at it from the family's side, or whichever perspective you're looking from, we're trying to lay it out there to let you understand, this is what people think, this is what's out there, and this is why people think this, and then let you be the judge. Um, and I think that's kind of what you have to do, especially when, you know, it's a so, case is so complicated like this, and also when it could go so many different directions. Tim, when we worked together,
2: you wrote so many interesting stories and so many so many long stories. You wrote a truly great story about John Urschel, the retired Baltimore Ravens guard, who retired basically to become a mathematician and go to school at MIT to try to get to be one of the world's most foremost uh, mathematicians. You wrote a great story about uh, Donald Trump as a as a USFL owner of the New Jersey Generals. Uh so you you've you've been really really good writing about people in great depth. What was different about doing a podcast in great
1: depth? Uh that's a good question. I think it was um you know, I mean you know it, it people are different when when they have a microphone in for them, right? Yeah. I mean even when you're a journalist and you're interviewing someone you have your tape recorder on um you know, I, sometimes I think people can forget that the tape recorder's there. When you have a big honking professional podcast mic in front of them, it's harder for them to forget. But sometimes they do. And I think that's kind of the art of the interview, right? And then it's like, you know, if they have a TV camera in front the of them. The longer the interview, the better, I believe. Yeah. 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 You mean for podcast? Yes. Yeah. Sure. And, and, uh, but, you know, I think it's, um, you know, I guess it's, it's the same skill set though, getting people to open up and, uh, you know, you're using, you're using the same tools. And then real, the real difference, I thought, was writing the scripts. And like when you sit down and you're writing like a serialized script and, you know, what you write on the page may not sound great saying it out loud and, you know, the back and forth of that. And then it's almost like you're writing like a, you know, TV show, but, you know, it's an audio series and it was a lot of fun. Do you, you haven't finished this yet as
2: we speak. No. So when you get to the end... Do you believe that you are going to try to convince people in one way or the other what happened, or are you going to
1: allow people to try to form their own opinion? I think, uh, I I don't think I'm going to, you know, I don't think I'm going to take a, a hard stance one way or the other, but I think there is going to be stuff at the end. I mean, as you get through the whole series, as I've been saying to people, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff along the way that sometimes is going to make you scratch your head and think wow, I really don't think she did do it. And there may be some points where you think, oh, wow, she might've done it. And, you know, we're going to lay everything out there and let you decide. And I may, you know, at the end, I may give my opinion or I may, you know, let you know what I think, but I don't think that's going to be, you know, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. That's kind of the beauty of the thing. But um, yeah, you're right. I mean, we haven't written the last episode yet. And people, you know, I've been, I've been talking on Nashville radio and people have been asking me, okay, you know, I'm sure you got something. And we do have stuff. We have a lot of new stuff in here. We have a lot of, uh, you know, new information. And, you know, we, we, we do a thorough deep dive into the case and we bring up new stuff and we bring up stuff that probably a lot of people haven't heard before. Um, and I think by the end of it, you know, I think a lot of people, I think this is going to be the, the definitive, you know, project on the Steve McNair case. I think this is going to be, goes deeper than anyone's ever gone before. Tim, the other day,
2: Scott Fowler of the Charlotte Observer reached out to me and he said, hey, I'm putting out a podcast on Ray Carruth getting out of prison. Now, for those who don't remember the Ray Carruth case, Ray Carruth uh, and another man were found uh, complicit in the murder of his pregnant girlfriend in Charlotte. I'm trying to think, about 20 years ago, I forget exactly how long it is, and he's been in prison since then. Uh, The woman died, but the baby was born, and the baby is developmentally disabled, uh, and a delightful kid, a teenager now, uh, or maybe around 20, and... Uh, Ray Carruth is getting out of jail, and Scott Fowler, who has written extensively about this over the years, is doing a podcast on this. At the exact same time, the Boston Globe's spotlight team, their investigative team, which is very, very good, is doing a multi-part podcast on Aaron Hernandez and what led him to become this, basically this monster. And so at the same time, right in the middle, you're coming out with a Steve McNair podcast. This seems like one of the great coincidences in recent, whatever, journalism history. But is it, is it all a coincidence? And what do you know about these other
1: deals? It's a complete coincidence as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. And also, not only that, Boston Globes dropped October 15th. I believe the Charlotte Observer dropped the 16th and ours dropped the 17th. <laughs> so they all dropped on three consecutive days. That's crazy. And I guess you saved the best for last. I don't know. Yeah. but No, those, I mean, those, I mean, you know, when I first saw those, I mean, I thought, you know, I thought, you know, we've been working on this for more than a year. And, you know, it was surprising even back then that no one in the sports realm or in the journalism realm had taken a, had taken a sports story and really, you know, given it the podcast treatment. Uh, right. But you know it's a it's a great form as you, you kind of mentioned at the top that you know podcasts really give you a chance to dive deep into something over a course of uh, serialized episodes and you know you, you you can still use the same writing skills that you have as a journalist and the same reporting and you know, just apply it to sports I think it's really good for sports journalism uh, especially having the spotlight team come in and you know do something uh, you know significant I've you know read the first two parts of their series and it's been fantastic I'm excited to. Listen to the Ray Carruth thing. I think, you know, in, in looking at those, and I, I think they're all three separate stories too, right? And they're all interesting true crime stories in in their own right. I mean, you look at the Hernandez thing and, you know, Aaron Hernandez is dead. And so the the Boston Globe is kind of going back and trying to make sense of his complicated life. The Ray Cruz thing, uh, you know, I think Ray, I think Ray's coming out of prison, right? I think he's set to be released yes. from prison. So I'm curious to see what kind of, new information they have. But that's kind of a case that's, you know, he went to he went to jail. So his his case is kind of, I don't know how much mystery is there. But this Steve McNair thing, you know, we uh, there's a lot of people who still don't know what truly happened, right? There's, yeah. there's this, you know, and ours is that there was this, the police came out with a conclusion. There's a lot of people who have questioned that conclusion, right? Uh, so I think they all three kind of take like an interesting, you know, look at, you know, they're all different approaches to, you know, you know, tough subjects Tim
2: Rohan of the MMQB uh, your 9 part podcast series Fall of a Titan comes out, or has come out rather, with part 1 you'll have part 2 coming out this week and it'll be out for 7 weeks after that uh, brought to you by Cadence 13 the same producers of this podcast so uh, I wish you the best Tim, and I'm really really excited to follow this throughout the fall Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on. Thanks to my guests, Dan Fouts and Tim Rohan. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in my podcast series, such as my conversations with Roger Goodell, John Elway, and Chris Mortensen. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the Peter King podcast on SiriusXM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, SiriusXM, Channel 82. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Sonos, Quicken, and ZipRecruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.